y'all. Welcome back to Zora's Daughters, the podcast where we discuss popular culture with a Black feminist anthropological lens. I'm Brendan, and I use she, her, hers pronouns. Hi, everyone. I'm Alyssa, and I use she, her, hers pronouns as well. Before we get into the episode, we just wanted to say that we stand in solidarity with the student workers of Columbia University who are currently on strike, and we support the demands for living wages, better health care, and child care access, support for international students, and protection from harassment. So we ask that you join us in denouncing the university's intimidation tactics and call mm-hmm. on the administration to agree to a fair contract for graduate workers as they undergo arbitration. If you'd like to donate to the strike fund, the link will be in the episode description. Yes, so and today we are talking about gentrification, blackness, mambo sauce, mm. And the new show Harlem, which is on the Devil's Channel, LOL. Um, before <laughs> before we get started, though, uh, we wanted to say thank you to all of our supporters. Thank you to everyone who has donated to the podcast or engaged with us on Instagram and Twitter. We wouldn't be doing this without you. Y'all are actually keeping the proverbial lights on this holiday season. You know, the stipend checks... They don't, yeah, they don't be hitting. They don't be hitting. They don't be hitting. By the time, you know, in, in September they hit, but by December, mm. you know, you're making a dollar out of a dime. So if you would like to donate, please head to our website, zorasdaughters.com. We also love non-monetary support. So leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts and follow us at Zora's Daughters on Instagram and Zora's underscore daughters on Twitter. Also... We find that the way most people hear about us is through word of mouth. So please share a podcast with your friends, your family, or suggest it it, instead of or alongside that masterclass that everyone has such strong opinions about. Mm, mm, mm. Uh. (laughs) Anyway, let's get to it with our word for the day, shall we? What's the word for today, Alyssa? All right. Our word for today is gentrification. Here we are. It's all going to make sense. That's all we're talking about today. Mm -hmm. And according to my wonderful dictionary of sociology, gentrification is, quote, the upgrading of decaying, normally inner city housing, involving physical renovation, the displacement of low status occupants by higher income groups, and frequently tenure change from private rental to home ownership. So the term was first used by the British urban sociologist Ruth Glass in 1964, which makes sense, actually, since the root of gentrification is gentry, like the British noble class. Hmm. And so as I was reading the definition, I was like, you know what, let me just look up inner city, too. Because even though I know what people are trying to say, I know what you're saying (laughs) when you say inner city. I wanted to understand what's really meant by it, particularly in a geographical or in a sociological sense. And so my trusty dictionary, when I did look up inner city, it sent me to a different term, which is zone of transition. And so the Mm -hmm. inner city is also known as a zone of transition, which is an urban area between the central business district and outer rings of working class and middle class residences like the suburbs that contain slum houses. And typically it's inhabited by poor ethnic minorities and socially deviant groups. You know, what are, what are they really saying that they're not saying, you know? Um, according to the CDC report, Health Effects of Gentrification, it is a housing, economic, and health issue that affects a community's history and culture and reduces social capital. 
Gentrification often shifts a neighborhood's characteristics by adding new stores and resources in previously run-down neighborhoods. So I want to hold on to that question of social capital and how that is transformed. In Sabia Prince's 2005 article, Race, Class, and the Packaging of Harlem, she points out that many of her Harlem interlocutors have lived in Harlem for most of their lives. They know their neighbors and are caregivers to elderly family members. So when you price people out of the neighborhoods that they've grown up in, what do you think happens to their social connections, to the kin networks they've had or created? They're obviously gone, right? So. Bye. Like, you know, <laughs> what impact does that have on their health? Like, right. We think about restaurants and food and things like that, which is central to this episode. But what about these networks that disappear? Mm-hmm. Gentrification is often posited as a value add that cleans up, quote, communities and implicitly improves the lives of everyone. Right. But does it actually? Yeah, that's a real question. Because once that stuff happens, then you have the policy recommendations that say, okay, we're going to put in mixed income housing, Mm -hmm. which has actually been shown in a variety of studies to be completely useless, particularly Mm -hmm. for the low income folks. It doesn't do what it says it should do. And even what it says it should do is quite messed up, if you ask me. And what they say is that it will actually help with social capital because low-income folks will have the opportunity to create connections with those with a higher income and who have more social networks and will help them get jobs and things like that. Right, because you just talk to people in your apartment building. Right? Exactly, yeah, because that's li- <laughs> literally... Definitely New York life. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Listen, one time I screamed in the apartment, and <laughs> I screamed in the apartment because something scared me, and my partner goes next door, and he's like, hey, um, you know, have you been having the same issue as us? And she was like, oh, yeah, I heard your girlfriend scream. Uh, I didn't come over. I was just like, wow, that's a real New York <laughs> stuff right there. I wasn't I'm even going to check. I'm going to mind, I'm my, mind my, business. my business. I'm going to wait for the Rat News Network to tell me what's <laughs> going on, basically. <laughs> um, so, yes. It doesn't work because people spend time with the people who are similar to them. So if you all are familiar with Morgan Jerkins, she wrote uh, the book, This Will Be My Undoing. In 2015, she wrote an essay for The Guardian about how she realized that she was gentrifying Harlem. She was participating in its gentrification and its and its um, change. I was going to say changement. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> French. French and English mixing together. <laughs> And it's changement. Um, she thought that she would fit in as a black woman, uh, mm-hmm. even though she was from New Jersey. She was like, I'm going to just slide right in there. And then she realizes, oh, I'm gentrifying too. She doesn't know any Harlemites, right? She spends time with other professionals, her friends who also went to Ivy League universities. So if that's who you have moving into mixed income housing, they're going to spend time with their friends. They're not going to start talking to residents that they don't know and residents right. who have lived in the city the whole time, they're not going to be like, oh, let me go and make friends with this bougie-ass person who just moved into this neighborhood who <laughs> who has actually displaced me from my original apartment building or my home or something mm-hmm. like that. Right. Like, that's why mixed-income in- housing doesn't do what folks think, right? And actually... 
for those who move into the affordable units, right? They don't even have access to the luxury building amenities. I've Mm -hmm. heard that multiple times from people who've moved into those kind of apartment buildings. Like they, they don't have the washer dryer in unit. They have the laundry mat that's at the basement, you know? Um, their apartments are smaller mm-hmm. and possibly more raggedy, like which definitely. You know, if we're thinking about New York scale of raggedy to luxury, there's a lot of room. So <laughs> you know, uh, <laughs> it's like not a secret that these developers create mixed income housing because they want to have tax write offs. There's certain privileges you get as a developer where you when you say, "Oh, I have some affordable housing units in my high rise." And they're trying to do the least possible to maximize their profits. Seriously. I've even heard of places where they can't use the same entrance as market rate residents. So what does that what does that sound like? Mm. Hmm. Okay. Mm. And mm. honestly, I have seen the affordable housing lottery apartments in New York City. I am on Housing Connect. Real ones know. <laughs> I was I was on there when I first moved to New York. Real ones know, and it doesn't even make any sense to me. The rents are often so high in comparison to the maximum salary that I still couldn't afford to live there. And mm-hmm. and and then if they are actually affordable, where you're like, oh, that's a seven hundred dollar unit for a studio, got it. There's only two of them available, so you know you're not gonna get it. It doesn't even make sense. So. With that said, I'm actually curious, and it's something I've been thinking about living in Harlem. You know, I'm curious about what triggers gentrification and if it's possible to prevent or mitigate it while still improving a community and continuing to serve the people who live and are from there. Mm. And so I, I guess it would be rising rents in the main part of the city. But then, you know, when I think about it, there are definitely some parts of Baltimore that aren't gentrified like that one neighborhood you drove me through last <laughs> month I was like yeah that looks like Harlem in the 90s <laughs> but even that place is rapidly changing right mm. uh, every year thousands of black Baltimorean residents are displaced from their homes as redevelopment quote-unquote happens and uh, the other day I was driving through that exact same area for the exact same reason that we drove through um (laughs) and i actually saw a sign that revitalization is coming to the the very neighborhood that you saw Mm -hmm. um east 29th to east 43rd there's this huge sign that says um yes like revitalization is coming and it's to be completed by november 2022 there are a lot of studies with different responses to gentrification like most complex things there's is no reason or single cause of it i even saw an article with an a to z list artists to zoning so artists declining crime rates and influx of independent stores improved transit economic opportunity policies that of course only benefit those who don't need that economic opportunity mm-hmm. wink wink All right, job growth Ooh, traffic lack of housing um and there's definitely more but for a place like harlem and a place like baltimore right these decreased crime rates and an already established black middle class probably had a lot to do with it true i i've actually heard that artists queer folks and students they tend to make places trendy so when they start moving in and generally for queer folks it's like they're people who 
have been discriminated out of living mm -hmm. in particular areas. So now they start moving to another area, then it becomes trendy. And then once they move in, the middle class moves in. And so Columbia, for example, Columbia University in the city of New York has definitely been bringing students to Harlem for a while. And we can definitely say, and you had a class that kind of addressed this in the way that the university has been complicit in some of mm -hmm. this displacement and gentrification of Harlem. In any case, of course, I had a chat with Bay about this episode. I know y'all love hearing about him. <laughs> <laughs> but he actually is one of the few people I know who was born and raised in Harlem. And I'm pretty sure any of the other ones I know, I know through him. So I don't get out, I don't think I get out enough. <laughs> Anyway, I asked him if he thought black people could gentrify. That's a hot topic. Is it? I don't know, maybe. It should be. <laughs> and so he said that he didn't think so because there's a component of gentrification that involves cultural erasure. And black people tend to move here because they identify with Harlem's culture, Harlem's history, mm -hmm. its people, and not because they want to change it or get rid of it altogether. So with that, I was like, okay, I can't even argue except to play devil's advocate. A true Aquarian style. <laughs> His eye, eye is here. <laughs> the, only, the only little amendment I would make is that I don't think cultural erasure is what's at stake. And as we'll see in our next segment, it's more of a museumification of culture. I'm not making that word up, but I might be using it incorrectly. So the museum studies folks, y'all can come for me. Um, but what I think it is, is it treats the neighborhood or the city as though it's cultural vibrance and production, like music, art, and festivals. They treat it like mm -hmm. it's a thing of the past and the refined or, you know, whitened versions are what's on offer that demonstrate that the place hasn't lost its authenticity. Mm -hmm. But we know that authenticity re rhetoric often means stasis, and that doesn't work for culture or for human life in general. So that narrative doesn't really allow for black geographies to be understood as living, breathing communities that are always changing. You know, I feel like you planned for this to be a great transition into what we're reading today. Girl, everyone knows that we script these episodes. <laughs> yes, so what we're reading is DC is Mambo Sauce, Black Cultural Production in a Gentrifying City, by Ashante M. Reese. Dr. Ashante M. Reese earned a PhD in anthropology from American University. Broadly speaking, Dr. Reese works at the intersection of critical food studies and black geographies, examining the ways black people produce and navigate food-related spaces. Animated by the question, who and what survives, Dr. Reese's work has focused on the everyday strategies black people employ while navigating inequity. Her first book, Black Food Geographies, Race, Self-Reliance, and Food Access in Washington, D.C., takes up these themes through an ethnographic exploration of anti-blackness and food access. Black Food Geographies won the 2020 Best Monograph Award from the Association for the Study of Food and Society, and the 2020 Margaret Mead Award, jointly awarded by the American Anthropological Association and the Society for Applied Anthropology. Currently, Dr. Reese is working on a cultural history of sugar and Sugarland, Texas, in which she explores the spatial, economic, and carceral implications of sugar and the sometimes contradictory and deadly sweetness that marks black life. 
A committed teacher, Dr. Reese was the recipient of the 2020 to 2021 Friar Centennial Teaching Fellowship. So I'm really excited to be reading her work for the podcast. I actually had a Zoom meeting with her last year when I was working through my exam lists, and she was super helpful with me. You know, she really got me thinking about different ways to come at food and farming in my particular project. Yes. Um, well, I have not met Dr. Reese in person yet. I'm going to say yet. Um, <laughs> but you are lucky. Uh, I've heard so much about her and her work, so it's a pleasure to discuss today. This essay takes Mambo Sauce as the object of analysis through which Reese comes to understand the class and racial tensions that are foregrounded by gentrification in D.C., I found it to be an approachable introduction to critical food studies, honestly, for me. Uh, I am a Taurus Venus who <laughs> enjoys food, but I actually cannot bring myself to study it. But I will say, um, and this Mambo Sauce is mentioned specifically in the article, mm-hmm. I have Capital City Company Mambo Sauce in my fridge and in my cabinet. Uh, my ex put me on and my fries have not been the same since. I too have Capital City Mambo Sauce in my fridge. <laughs> Okay, so (laughs) we did not choose that article for this reason. It's actually, (laughs) it's just the universe coming together nicely for us, as it often does. Mm -hmm. So it was actually gifted by uh, one of Bay's friends the last time we were in D.C. So, yes. It's a very, we could talk about that. We could talk about that, actually. Because this whole mambo sauce gets interesting. In any case. Reese uses this essay to write about how Mambo Sauce travels, which I can say it is at least to my kitchen here in New York, Mm -hmm. to Brendan's kitchen in in Baltimore. Did I say it right? Mm. No. (laughs) Baltimore. 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 (laughs) (laughs) But of course, that is not what Reese means per se. So in D.C., space becomes marked by the presence or absence of this meaningful condiment that has a role in distinguishing DC, which is where black folks live, and Washington, which is the government center, or at least it's separated in that way by some of her interlocutors. Mm -hmm. Mambo sauce is a condiment served with chicken wings at carry-out restaurants, which Reese's interlocutor explains serves strictly Chinese food, right? So when they say it's like takeout, but they're talking about Chinese food, And specifically, Mm -hmm. black people are eating the wings, the French fries, the fried rice, things like that, not all of the Chinese food. And each restaurant has a slightly different recipe or version. So they switch up the ingredients and it gives it a different flavor because they are, they're kind of trying to like accommodate for the taste of people in their neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. And so the essay tracks the movement of mambo sauce from historically black and in low income neighborhoods to upscale and mainstream restaurants Another example of the way material associated with blackness is appropriated, commodified, and circulated. At the same time, these materials of belonging for black people become markers of authenticity, a sign that the city isn't losing the charm that drew them to it in the first place, for the interlopers, even as black people are being pushed out of the city. It's that museumification we discussed earlier. Right, for sure. Uh, In the article, Dr. Reese starts with the micro, this kind of everyday material, rather than these major questions of displacement and dispossession that are commonly associated with talking about Black life in the city, to remind us that symbolic violence can be slow and it can also be small, right? And by small, it's not just about the tiny mambo sauce packet, 
right? but also an attention to the affective, these emotional connections that one has with foods. So what we eat and what we consume, and I'm marking consumption as something different from eating, right? Mm. Carries so much more than nutritional value. And I'm doing my little air quotes here because we've talked about fat phobia, right? So nutritional value is tied up in that. And that determines whether something is healthy, quote, or unhealthy, quote. So our food signals borders, boundaries, traditions, family histories, as well as colonial histories of displacement and dispossession. And Reese aims to have us consider those different textures as we think about gentrification. How does mumbo sauce as a metaphor and a material signal shifts, undoings, and realignments as gentrification shifts the racial landscape of D.C.? And she actually interestingly talks about in her methods, I found, and she talks about walking through the city with her interlocutors, right? And mm. one way that she marks these shifts and realignments is through these formations of these chocolate maps, which she draws from Chocolate Cities, the Black Map of American Life by Marcus Anthony Hunter and Zandria Robinson. So these chocolate maps are sites and networks of places where Black culture is created, maintained, and defended. And Mambo Sauce firmly holds its place on DC's Chocolate City map, even though DC is no longer Chocolate City. It's Latte. What do they say? Latte Latte Cappuccino City. Cappuccino. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, She tracks this movement of Mambo Sauce from the hearts and carryouts of Black DC to the Black-owned Capital City Company that sells the packaged Mambo Sauce that sits in Alyssa and her booze fridge (laughs) and in my cabinet and my fridge, right? And then transverses the Anacostia to the upscale restaurant named the Hamilton, just a mile away from the White House. Reese explains that food is just one of the ways that in particular, white and middle-class people play and engage with difference, how they quote, contest and transverse, or in traverse, excuse me, the boundaries of what is safe and what is not. Mm, it's so interesting. So the reason I was saying we can talk about the mambo sauce in my fridge because of specifically because of who was given to us by. Mm-hmm. So when I went in the summer, it was my second time in DC. The first time I was with I was with a white friend. So we did not talk about this mambo sauce. Didn't hear about it. Had no idea. This time we were visiting Bay's friends. Um, a couple. They're black. They grew up in DC. Are definitely in the DMV. And. Um, they were like, oh yeah, you've got to take home some mambo sauce with you from Capital City. And so he went to one of the grocery stores and picked it up for us and gave us like a spicy version and the mild version. Mm. And I was like, okay, but why mambo sauce? What, what, what is it? And he was just like, his friend, his name is Langston, I'm name dropping. He was just like, yeah, you know, we, uh, this is just something that we, that we eat here. It's like an, just an old school, grew up with it. Um, and then this, you know, this black woman, she created this brand to sell, you know, and they sell mambo sauce. So you just have to try it when you get home, like, you know, have it with some fries or with chicken wings. And, mm-hmm. and so he was just really explaining it to me. And I was just like, oh, this is this is really interesting. This is different. I like mambo sauce now. It's very tasty. <laughs> yeah, I've had it a couple of times. Um, like I said, my ex, my ex went to University of Maryland in College Park. And so... It's like, oh, when we moved down to Baltimore together last year, it's like, oh, yeah, we got to try all these different mambo sauces and mm. um, different carryouts and stuff. And it is different depending on what carryout you go to. Some Sometimes it tastes more like ketchup. Sometimes it tastes, which, ugh, you know, ugh. tastes more um, like barbecue ke- sauce. 
you know, it tastes more like barbecue sauce. But the one that um, that we both have, I think it really does have a unique taste to it. I like the spicy version. It's like, mm. Mm. yeah, it really does. It adds a little something to my fries. So <laughs> I enjoy it, but uh, it's even you, you name drop Langston, and I'm like, even the name Langston in <laughs> an episode about gentrification of Harlem is, you know, the universe coming together. <laughs> I know. Well, his his parents are, um, they were like big labor union activists um, in the area. Mm. I want to say like the 80, like just, just, from like the 60s on. Um, and there's actually an article about them, about his parents in the Times or something. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. So um, they're very like, uh, what is it? Very progressive in that sense. Mm-hmm. I also had to ask about what go-go and half smokes are. It was in the article. <laughs> so I got the answer on go-go, but... Uh, they did not know what half smokes are. Do you know what half smokes are? Mm-mm. All right. Can um, someone can someone from the DMV please write us please. up? Please send us an email. Hit us up on Instagram and just let us know because one of the t-shirts apparently says Mambo Sauce, Go-Go, and Half Smokes. So Go-Go is a type of music. It's like a DMV, like maybe just a D&M. <laughs> Dance club music, something like that. You know, it, it's club it music. Sounds, it's club music. I cannot say that I am a fan, um, <laughs> but I'm also Southern. I I like Little John and the East Side Boys. So if that is any indication of where my hip hop where your knowledge lies, lies you know, um, it's God. with crunk juice, crunk juice till <laughs> I die. Um, <laughs> but I think I mean I think this shows the the power of ethnography right and of like our anthropological toolkit because uh dr reese is not she said she's not from dc i'm pretty sure so Mm -hmm. she went there for for grad school and so she's getting to know all of these like little um Mm -hmm. cultural references that people wouldn't necessarily have to explain to people who are from there um and so that's what i really like about this article about anthropology as well is the way that you have to you have to really spend time with people and have them explain things to you um, in order to understand and you can't really can you really understand another's culture fully no but can you like come to know more about it through spending time with them yes so it's not just mm-hmm. enough to read or observe right you really have to participate or send out surveys You know, I have to do it. I have to. Okay, I'm, I'm done. <laughs> but I mean, when we get to the next segment, that's what they talk. That's what um, one of the critiques of the main character is: is that she hasn't done enough field work. That you can't, mm-hmm. you know. And and her her mentor or the woman she wants and wishes was her mentor is like you really have to spend time with people. It's not just enough to observe. You have to be in in the community. In any case. Reese brings it back to what Mayor Muriel Bowser said in a 2018 Facebook post about mambo sauce. She says that she had never heard of it until she was an adult. It's not the be-all, end-all of D.C. And, of course, Mm. she wouldn't. Though she may be a black woman, she grew up in northeast D.C. and she attended private schools. So she's actually more aligned with the, quote, newcomers and gentrifiers 
who have changed Chocolate City to Latte City, end quote. So her comments do not reflect the significance of Mambo Sauce to DC, but rather her physical and symbolic distance from the people and places that serve it. Mambo Sauce is not part of her social map, even though she's a black woman, and her experience highlights how class and race must be considered together when we think about black food ways. As a side note, and here's an exercise for all of y'all, because I know you're going to be assigning this podcast episode to your classes. So there's an exercise that I like to do, which is um, have people draw maps from memory of a particular place. Mm-hmm. So I did it a couple of years ago in a class I was teaching, or well, I, I did a kind of guest lecture. And I had students draw a map of campus and then compare their maps with you know whoever they were sitting next to. I also did the same thing with a few friends, and I just said, draw Harlem. That had some really interesting um, results. But with the students, <laughs> it was very telling to say who considered Barnard a part of the Columbia campus, or mm-hmm. who included the library, who included John Jay Hall. You know, it tells you where people go, where they spend their time, um, and what their personal maps of space and place are. So, mm-hmm. you know, I know if y'all are going to use this episode for class, just let it be known I helped you have an activity too. <laughs> yes. And be sure to cite Alyssa. Um, I think this activity is really good and highlights the ways that space is socially and affectively given meaning. Um, it's something that I hope to do with my interlocutors when I'm able to sit with people in person. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so the chef who Reese mentions in the article who had added mambo sauce to his menu could be seen as demonstrating ingenuity and creativity, right? Like, oh, wow, look at this new thing that you're doing. Um, Mm -hmm. (laughs) Innovative. Uh, But Reese (laughs) actually points out that this is within an established practice of appropriating and repackaging foods for a broader, which we all know reads as white audience. And particularly when those that these foods are appropriated from, like for example, in this case, black people, are read as always already available for the taking. So our foods, our clothes, and our speech are just some of the things that need refinement when taken up for the white gaze and white consumption. And this dynamic where an unhealthy and unrefined food made for black taste becomes something expensive and desirable when refined for white palates is quintessential anti-blackness. Uh quintessential colonizer behavior right it erases (laughs) the cultural social and political milieu that produces the black cultural product which often includes complicated histories of anti-black violence and resistance so as reese says quote gentrification creates contested spaces in which bodies and tastes are conscripted to maintain or liberate borders and to stake claim on a changing city Gentrification and the uptake of Black cuisine and cultures outlines what spaces are too Black to be livable, to be something, right? And black spaces are are, tend, are always written as an urban context, right? It's nothing, in a mm-hmm. sense. And which spaces Blackness as life, as coolness, and as currency are valued. So the latter does not have to be a space, though, where Black people are present. And we want to make sure we mark that, right? Blackness can be in spaces where Black people are not present and in other words when black people do something it's ghetto right but when white people finally get around to doing it it's classy and cool like oxtail um, oh, as don't, an example right 
<laughs> why are y'all consuming oxtail now? Why do I go to the grocery store? Why is it that when I try to pick up a pack of oxtail from Safeway that a pound and a half is $23? I, yeah. I want to know. But also, I guess the question is, why did I spend the money? But, um, you know, I spent it because I was cooking dinner for myself and, you know, special occasions. So, you know, I wanted some oxtail. I feel like the next thing up is chitlins, which I feel like will be the new hot cuisine. Um, But y'all won't be serving it with hot sauce. Mm, Uh, No. Highly, (laughs) highly unlikely. I just, uh, the oxtail gets me. The oxtail gets me as a fake yachty. It just, mm-hmm. uh, I'm actually, I've been loving the tweets about why you shouldn't gentrify oxtail. People have like, oh, it doesn't sit right in your stomach. <laughs> and like, mm-hmm. Isn't, think it's, about it. It's the tail of an animal. It's highly fatty. And I just mm-hmm. mean like, it is already expensive enough. Like the video that's been going around on Food Insider, they said it can cost up to $10 a pound. I was like, I need to know, I need to go where you are going. Because when I bought it last week for my mom's visit, it was like $15 a right. pound. I was, even my mom was shook. She was like, oh, I'm going to call mama, her mom. She's like, I'm going to call mama and tell her how much oxtail is here. She'll never believe it. Like, she just couldn't believe it. <laughs> I, was, I was shook. The one see. The thing that I've been saying is actually next up, and I'm surprised it was oxtail. I think it's going to be Aki. I wish I didn't say that on this on this podcast, but I think it's gonna be Aki because it's such a like low calorie food. It could be like a replacement for scrambled eggs. That's what people say. So I'm just like, if they start gentrifying Aki, I'm gonna be so upset. But anyways, wow, perfect the ways in which I don't know what that is, and I you don't you, you mm. don't know Aki and saltfish. I've heard of it, but I've never had it. <gasps> okay, next time you come, I have a can in the cupboard. So next time you come over. I'll make Yay. it for you. It's a, it's more of a mm. breakfast breakfast brunch food, but okay. it has. I I'll, have been I'll known come to come earlier. <laughs> well, come over earlier you can eat it. You can eat it anytime, <laughs> but it's typically served for breakfast. But there we go. Here we go. Sharing sharing our little lives and cultures, uh, which is a great <laughs> segment. Seg. Wow. Which is a great segue into our next segment, which is what. what? In the world? In the world. What in the world is going on? What in the world? Y'all know what's going on right now. Because it has been, it's actually been pretty, it's been all over black, black academic Twitter, I'll say. I would say, yeah. It's been around. Um, Because people are upset, I think, with representation. But we'll get to that. When are people Uh, not upset about representation? Like, representation is never enough. Okay, but anyway, we'll get to it. We will. We we. <laughs> I <laughs> asterisk uh, bookmark on that. Uh, today we are talking about the new Amazon Prime series called Harlem. Spoiler alert! Boom boom crash crash. We will try to keep them to a minimum as much as possible, but sometimes we will say a bit to say what we need to say. You know. And we should also say that because of our interest in anthropology as anthropologists, anthropoltergeists, we are, because <laughs> that's, that's, that's the life we're going to be living once the season is over. Um, we are mostly going to talk about Camille, who is kind of the main character's storyline. Yes. So Harlem is a 10-episode series about four black women 30-somethings trying to navigate life and love in Harlem, directed by Malcolm D. Lee of Girls Trip fame. Oh. Yes. 
The series features Camille, played by Megan Good, the self-involved adjunct cultural anthropology professor at Columbia University, Ty, played by Jerry Johnson, the mass lesbian successful tech entrepreneur. Fine. So, mm, mm. okay. <laughs> Angie. <laughs> Angie. <laughs> Angie, played by Shaniqua Shandai, the says what everyone was thinking singer who is down on her luck, and Quinn, played by Grace Byers. If y'all watch Empire, you know who she is. She's also West Indian, bop, bop, okay. And she plays the trust fund baby and former banker turned flailing fashion designer. Why did I put so much alliteration in that description? Okay. You were really Ooh. creative. I really was. Creative. And then I forgot I had to read it out loud. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so the show has not been able to avoid comparisons to Insecure, of course, and Run the World, which is a stars show that features four black women in Harlem one of whom is a PhD candidate at Columbia in African-American studies, and she is in a relationship with her supervisor. That would never happen, but I just had to say never. that. Okay. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. No. Mm-mm. And especially when they had the dinner party and they invited other faculty over. Never. Okay. Never. Overall, I'm glad to see that there are three TV shows that feature black women, particularly where the story is not about struggle, Right. And so in Harlem, gentrification itself becomes almost a fifth character and seems to be an undercurrent in a lot of the episodes. Throughout the season, they address the decreasing blackness of Harlem, sexual awakenings, black hair, being first generation American, and the ways black women are often forced to sacrifice something for success, whether that's their Mm -hmm. mental health, their relationships, and so on. And so while the focus of today's episode is gentrification, I think it's important to briefly bring in some of the other things we discussed on the pod and particularly colorism, because that definitely animates the plot of this show in mm-hmm. a lot of ways. And I don't know why I'm acting like I didn't know that Malcolm D. Lee was, you know, a girl strip. <laughs> I, I That also helped me make a lot of sense out of this. Mm-hmm. Um, but the character Angie is a dark-skinned woman who's humbled, essentially, by the loss of her music career. And so she's living off of Quinn, living on Quinn's couch. Who And Quinn is this very light-skinned, and for me, coded biracial, even though we know that both of her parents are black. There's, mm-hmm. a, there's a sense that she is black, but not, uh, in, a, in a way. Uh, and Angie's life is wild. It's unpredictable. It's unstable. And that is the character whose existence seems to be mired with suffering. She mm-hmm. can't seem to get ahead before she gets behind. And so she, as really the only dark-skinned woman, um, aside from Aunt, Auntie Tammy, who you are introduced to in later episodes, right, are <laughs> the major sources of comic relief in the show. And I just, I was just watching and I was like, yo, why can't we avoid these tropes and describing black women's lives? Like, I feel like even though this show provides some form of, you know, representation, so, you know, quote unquote, right? It does so in a pretty trite way. Definitely. And one of the things I don't like about TV shows and movies sometimes is when they're overly Mm -hmm. didactic, right? Like the purpose is just to moralize. And you definitely get that with some scenes in the show. There are points where I'm like, oh, I feel really seen and understood because this is something I've been through or something I've experienced. But then there are other parts where it's like, oh, you're just 
really trying to play up that like white liberal guilt and get mm. these white liberal guilty people to be better white people. And I'm just like, I'm over. I'm over that. I'm over it. Like, can we get a break, yo? I feel like <laughs> the interracial love story, which okay, as a queer person as queer, who's been in queer relationships, I think sometimes like people think that two women loving each other there's a certain way to represent that so how quickly they got into each other and then kind of the the um fiery end to it i thought was very tokenizing but that's um you know that's that's (laughs) another another layer to underneath the interracial aspect of it but i was like watching and i was like girl like what does this add like for real like okay now we know that white women have feelings too and that they can be hurt, like, okay, I, I guess. But if I would only have a question about that if I never have lived on this planet before. Like, <laughs> we know this. But I mean, but that final scene was really about, again, teaching certain people, white people, the right thing to say, which is like, yes, I have blind spots, but I'm willing to learn for, you know, for you and for the situation. And I was just like, I'm going to hear this repeated to me. Any the, yeah. like the next time I call out a white person for doing something white, right? Like, so it was just a lot. I did kind of like the whole like two mass lesbians hooking up and trying to be in a relationship <laughs> that, and trying something that new. Was that was hilarious. so funny. <laughs> that was funny to me because there's a reason why I am not a lesbian, and that's because you know I'm. You can't do all be. With the gender, you know, I I can't. Some of y'all can be really gender essentialist, and so the idea that masculinity means you're always initiating, you're always kind of taking charge, always doing this it it's a thing, it's a thing. But would I ever leave Ty? Absolutely not. Would I leave Ty? (laughs) I wouldn't. I would not. Could not. Um, I mean, but one of but but one of the things that she's I think. Her challenge in the show um, is actually her vulnerability and her lack Mm -hmm. of vulnerability and Mm -hmm. difficulty being vulnerable with people. So I think as much as I didn't like that scene with the little girlfriend, that was one of the things you saw there is like she was she wasn't really able to open herself up to her or to anyone in general. And we see that when she ends up in the hospital, when she's not feeling well, when she passes out. Right. It's like. Mm Yes, she's she's struggling with this, like, not wanting to seem weak. At the same time, I was kind of like, yeah, we get it. Black women aren't listened to. We have worse health outcomes. Like, we know, we know. And I think that the way, the fact that it happened wasn't the problem. It was more so the way that they dealt with it. And some mm-hmm. of it was, was comical. Like, when the doctor was like, you know, you should get a hysterectomy. And she was just like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Just because... <laughs> Just because I'm masked does not mean that I don't want to have children or whatever the case may be. But anyways, we're getting off track. I just wanted to say that that is the trap of representation, right? Where you have a show, you have a series or a, t- or a movie where it just becomes full of moralizing rather than just experiencing and watching lives being lived. Yeah. All right. So most of the episodes involve a lecture or a voiceover by Camille. And she's the adjunct professor at Columbia. And so in the first episode, her mentor tells her that she's going to move the budget around to give her tenure. So just so you yes. know, that is not how tenure works. 
Mm -hmm. does not work that way. Mm -hmm. uh, yes, tenure is a long process that you have to go through. You have to be hired onto the tenure track and an adjunct is not necessarily, is not on the tenure track. So of course her mentor gets fired because of some turf stuff that she says, that's the trans-exclusionary radical feminist. Brenda does not believe that you can be a radical feminist if you're trans-exclusionary. Okay. Period. <laughs> so I think that scene was supposed to poke fun at cancel culture and how soft, or like this, this perception that undergraduates are soft and they can't handle things. Um, but I think that joke was actually at the expense of trans women. So in any case, in the lecture, Camille tells her students to be Mosuo, a tribe known as the Kingdom of Women for a week. So high key, most anthropologists are way past the point of telling <laughs> our students to appropriate a culture. We would hope. <laughs> Low key, I really like her course. It's called like mm. Cultural and Social Anthropology of Sex and Relationships or Sex and Love or something like that. And I was like, I want to do that kind of research. I want to teach that. No wonder all of her classes are over-enrolled. <laughs> right. Like, what undergraduate doesn't want to know how people have sex across the world? I feel like you would be great at it. Um, you love analyzing relationships. That's why we're always talking about yeah. <laughs> relationships, real, real ones or the ones on TV. Mm -hmm. um, and I think what was interesting about Camille and even just how they – introduced us to the department was I found that the rep the representation of anthropologists in our department was like accurate <laughs> but not really at the same right. time like the the low numbers of black women mm. absolutely um we're sitting at uh one you know yeah. <laughs> in, in our entire department but I guess that kind of representation is accurate but not is called a caricature right? there's probably already a word for that and as I was watching, I too was like feeling a little like, okay, who is out here watching my life? Mm -hmm. Like Camille, char her character was like an odd mirror to yeah. me um, in a lot of ways. And if you know me in real life, if we're friends, you know exactly what the fuck I'm talking about. Wink, wink. But for those of you who don't know me, I feel like the most confirmation that I'm going to give about the mirroring is that we're both Gemini's bopping around uh, the <laughs> Columbia Anthro department. <laughs> yeah, that was it was so interesting. I was watching. I was like, hang on, were they were they following Brennan around? This is so odd. Um, I know. Didn't, the, so, someone the, asked if I sold your story to Prime. I was like, no. <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow, even though Camille's course is about relationships. And she, of course, named dropped some of the biggies, uh, the big anthropologists like Helen Fisher. Her thesis, quote unquote, her thesis, because we write right. dissertations to get a PhD. I guess it's just mm -hmm. too many syllables. Um, her thesis was about gentrification. And so her voiceover really appealed to me and my own interest in the second episode. She says that historians often say that if we don't learn about history, we're doomed to repeat it. And she's, she kind of counters that and says, but, quote, in Harlem of today, anthropologists tell us that by learning who we were, what the city was, we might get lucky enough to repeat it, end quote. So mm. it's, it's not so much that, like, corollary of if, if we're repeating it because we didn't learn, it's going to be negative. There's a negative con connotation to that idea. She's like, what if it was actually great to repeat it? And so she goes on to say that cities and communities are always changing and evolving, right, which we talked about earlier. And then she asks, how much of the past 
should be respectfully preserved and how much should be discarded in order to evolve. And so in the context of gentrification, cities benefit from cultural production while displacing and economically limiting those same people. And so Reese writes that, quote, while the city capitalizes on and promotes black history, it also actively attempts to erase it, end quote. Mm -hmm. And so that tracks for so many major cities everywhere, London, New York, Toronto, I see it in Harlem right now, right? Like I just saw a walking tour in Harlem a few weeks back. It was all white people. And it was like, mm -hmm. I remember a time when you would never, this is what he said. He was like, I remember a time where you would never see white people up here. Yeah, it's like not you witnessing a safari tour. <laughs> <laughs> like you grab your gear, grab your coat. Oh, it it was um, exactly like that. It really was. They all had umbrellas. <laughs> and it was hilarious. Oh, the one I saw, they all had umbrellas. Okay, that's really funny. Um, <laughs> right, like there was a time where white people didn't ride past 116. And if you you're know, if you're talking about the two if you're talking about the two or three train, it was 96. That's what he said. He was like they would not ride past that stop. Like all of that it would just right. be an exodus and it would be the only time you could get a seat on the three train during rush hour. That was what he said. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I remember walking around Harlem back when I used to be a young PhD candidate or student youth. Um, and like seeing posters with white men in business suits that were sitting on stoops of like brownstones. And I was like, well, hmm, why would you sit on your stoop in a suit? But mm. okay. The poster read something like this is Harlem or some shit like that. And I was shook. What? I was like, I know Langston Hughes and the other black artists of the Harlem Renaissance are like rolling around. <laughs> right um, I think some gives me back to something that you said earlier about gentrification kind of being like an undercurrent fifth character. I thought that it was like there and they made it a big theme in certain episodes, but then it also kind of served as like this socially conscious backstory mm. to Camille's chaotic love story. Mm, um, girl, you know, in true Gemini fashion, it's going through a lot. <laughs> uh, I feel like they could have been more didactic with the gentrification piece though mm. um versus focusing on camille's complicated relationship with pruitt with a whoopee <laughs> and uh ian's toxic like so toxic i know this is not the center or focus of this episode at all but i really feel like he is a libra or a libra as they say um <laughs> no tea no shade um <laughs> But the replacement, um, which and one of the gentrification or the main kind of center of it is this restaurant that was Ray's, formerly known as Ray's, that becomes this kind of like upper class restaurant. And so this replacement of the failing but popular black owned business with this kind of fancy ass restaurant demonstrates one of the myriad ways that food signals a shift in the borders of race and class, right? Mm. Like we go from eating turkey wings at Ray's to eating foie gras at Yeah, what what was it? Place. It was like some kind of foam. I forget what kind of foam it is now. Like Oh, it was oh, a foie gras yeah. foam, I think. Yeah. Um, and it was like <laughs> I I thought that was Auntie Timmy was not happy. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was really interesting. But what I think helped so she's like outside protesting it, right? And mm -hmm. 
I think what they did to complicate that whole idea of gentrification is that the chef of the restaurant is black, right? And he's, mm-hmm. you know, he's at least lived in Harlem in the past, right? And that then complicates that question of what, what and who can gentrify and is it gentrification mm-hmm. if there are black people involved, even though he's not necessarily of the community. So it's something I, I thought that that if you wanted to read into it, which you know we do, but <laughs> but, we do. but they probably weren't. We it do. was really complicating that question of what is gentrification and who's gentrifying. So since you mentioned Dr. Pruitt. She is introduced in episode three. Dr. Pruitt is played by Whoopi Goldberg. And there's a scene where she's like, Camille, I am a big fan of boundaries. So come over to my house for tea later. I was just like, "Mm, I need to live this way. I need to just be the big fan of boundaries. I was like, I need to be chill. That's that was also the episode where they see the poster for the new soul of Harlem. That's what the ad says. And then it's all white people at the table. And I actually remember when that poster was making the rounds on social media last year, it was upsetting people. People were angry. <laughs> people were like, I can't believe who put this up. And then finally, there's, there's an account called TBO Harlem, the best of Harlem. And they were like, it's, it's a poster from a movie. Everyone chill. But we can also you know, think about what that means for Harlem because the show is actually supposed to be um, about gentrification. But it was just it was just hilarious to to finally see something that I saw going around mm. and being like, what is that? What is this? And then to know that it's from the devil. <laughs> yeah. Hilarious. Amazon Prime. Hilarious. I mean, yeah. Yeah. That's wouldn't be surprised if they start buying buildings over here. Um, mm-hmm. and so Dr. Pruitt's research project is or her new research project is going to be on Seneca Village, the black settlement that was moved to make space for Central Park in New York. And Camille suggests that that was one of the earliest moments of gentrification in the city. And so that um, that village, Seneca Village, that's for real. And there's actually been some work done on, on it already by an archaeologist at Columbia. And there's still much work to be done. I think that there's at least mm-hmm. um, a PhD, former undergraduate student who's now doing her PhD. And I think she's going to do her project on that, from what I re- recall. That's cool. Yeah. I feel like before we continue, <laughs> I honestly the conspiracy theorist in me is like, what is the size of the check mm. that Amazon wrote Columbia? Mm. Given what how we started this episode, you know, given how we talked about the stipend check running out as December moves on, <laughs> um, you know, <laughs> that's all I'm gonna say on on record. No, but they must have gotten. They must have had a license to to use Columbia because they say right. the name. They have they the have. Um, the sign at the uh, at the panel. They have the full logo, so it doesn't just say like yeah, sometimes and the yeah. So and the letterhead. So sometimes things will just say like Columbia or Columbia U, and then I think those aren't necessarily licensed. But it had the whole government name on there: Columbia University in the mm-hmm. city of New York. And I was like, okay, yeah, definitely find some checks but at the same time they called out Columbia and its roots in the slave trade and how Columbia got rich off of it so yeah episode five is where we see the queer interracial situation situation Mm -hmm. right 
um, where Ty's walking around town with around Harlem, um, around Harlem specifically with and, and the way that her name has completely escaped my mind. Oh my gosh, um, Amy. I don't know. <laughs> Amy? I don't know. <laughs> um, it starts with an A, and you know they're walking down the street and. A black couple, a queer black couple, side eyes them, and Ty's like, "Ooh, I'm a little shook." And then, but she's like, "You know what? You know, love is love." Da da da. And then they're walking down the street, and a black man with a white woman kind of gives Ty a the nod, you know, the nod, up? like a nod, <laughs> like I, I see you seeing me, seeing you with your white queen oh, no. salute. <laughs> salute um and so the theme at least one of the themes that came from that moment was in ties processing and trying to figure out okay what do i do as the ceo of a tech company that's supposed to put queer people of color together who am i who are me to have a white partner in this situation and you know one of the the response to that is you know love is love but Ty says, yes, love is love, but a relationship is a choice. Mm. Um, And so I feel like, you know, love is also a choice, but that that is more of my philosophical. If I had my own sideshow, I would have a little philosophical moment about, you know, how we can we can choose. We can, in fact, choose who we love. Um, But interracial relationships becomes one of those kind of sticky points. Um, where we talk about kind of the like hypocrisy that some folks have of prioritizing blackness, black love, et cetera, but then we'll be out here with their their non-black people. And Angie does address this in the show, uh, in the conversations with Ty. But I wanted to know, like, how did you feel about it? Like, I really, you know, I already talked about how I feel like it was unnecessary for them to even have an interracial love story plot considering all the other shit that was going on with Ty Mm -hmm. (laughs) in this. Like, they could have just, you know, we could have skipped that. But um, what did you think? I am a fence sitter (laughs) on this topic. (laughs) Those who know me know why. uh, Those who know me know why. Um, On the show, like I said, I think it was more moralizing for... Mm. white people oh it was a teachable moment it was a teachable moment if you are going to and but then again i think genitals bump i think that there are of course some black folks who who do meet and fall in love with white people and they do have their own crisis about it so you know in that sense it's real maybe it wasn't necessary but i think in that sense it is i think it's i'm not saying it's not real i think I think in a show about black women loving and losing love and all of that, can we can we not put white people in the mix? Can can we just have a moment where black people are loving each other on TV, or is that are we past that moment now? I, I don't know. Have we passed it? I don't know either. I. Um, not until I mean, if not I until actor, segregation actor. comes back, Brandon. <laughs> <Yeah>. I mean, <laughs> if you know, let's. Uh, All let's... right, so on to the next uh, episode. <laughs> the next episode. That we are going to talk about. 
episode seven was all about addressing the strong black woman trope mm-hmm. and black excellence. And at one point, Angie, who was just dropping knowledge, speaking facts the whole season, Period. she was like, black excellence season. is a trap. And I was like, oh, my edges are gone. Where my edges go? Snatched. <laughs> so one of our episodes last year was about black girl magic. And I I think I had talked about how much that, that phrase and how it's proliferated. It has never really mm-hmm. sat right with me. And I think it's because it just feels like a double-edged sword that black women and girls have to be magic or excellent just to be seen as worthy. And, some, and not even just worthy, but just present, um, mm-hmm. which is something that other groups get without question. And so I think that you really see this whole like black excellence being a trap. Um, you see that in the scene when Dr. Pruitt tells Camille that she doesn't have uh, the publications. She's not ready to become a tenure track or a tenured mm-hmm. professor. I don't know which one they said specifically. She doesn't have enough publications. She doesn't have enough field work. And if she messes up, she'll ruin it for all the black women who came before and who will come after her. Oof. And Dr. Oof. Pruitt didn't think that Camille was worth the risk. And so there you see like the weight of black excellence, even when we are successful. It was just like she was punishing Camille for being a black woman, right? It was like the double jeopardy thing, you know, Mm -hmm. having to be twice as good, not being able to grow into the role like others are able to. So that that part was kind of triggering. Yeah. And then I mean, and then and then a black man gets the job over her. And she's sitting there and she's mm. lamenting and she's just like, oh, it's awful. You know, I can't even blame it on racism or something because the person who hired is a black woman and, you know, the person who got hired is a black man. And it's like, yes, but there's like, there's a difficulty that we face, that black women face, a.k.a. misogynoir, that mm-hmm. can be internalized and can be wielded against black women. So it's not like there wasn't, it's not like race and gender weren't involved in in the way that she was denied even the possibility of applying for the job. And she says it, you know, she, she, and I'm sure that like they know this in a sense, right? Because she says on the panel with Jameson, the, he's like a local activist who, um, you know, he's opening a charter school for black boys. And she's like, what about our black girls? Right? Mm-hmm. We are the ones who are left behind. So... That was, that was where I stood on that. I think the series overall, it also speaks to how we are expected to choose in academia. You know, you have to choose between a public life, a public academic life, a personal life, mm-hmm. and like an academic intellectual life. And I think it's a rare mm-hmm. person who is a successful public scholar who is equally taken seriously as an intellectual, right? And I think if you prioritize, because I mean, if you think about it, like, a lot of people know Cornell West, right, in the public sphere. I'm just using him as an example. Yes. I very rarely see him cited in the text that I read. That talk about race. That's that's just what I'm going to say. I think, yeah, and I think if you do see certain folks cited in text, it signals, as you were saying, like it signals a kind of... Um, where that text falls in a hierarchy of understanding. Yeah. Like, 
whether this text is canonical or not. Exactly. And so, I, I mean, <laughs> we're bringing, to bring up the master class that everyone um, has so many thoughts about. There's a there, you know, mm-hmm. he's a name listed in that in that master class. So there's a certain type of legibility that he has as a public scholar. Um, that will persist regardless of his relationship to black women. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, <laughs> which I'm gonna leave it at that. But like, I think that um, yeah, I totally agree with what you're saying. It's really difficult to. And I think also, I mean, in our department, like folks who have a more public intellectual life, that's not, oh, everyone knows me as the theor- theoretician behind capitalist XYZ, right? Like that's my public persona, mm-hmm. which is still kind of academic in a sense, right? There's There are very few people that we know in our department or even at Columbia who are able to kind of go between- Navigate both. Both and do like because even Sadia Hartman has a public life, public persona. Um, but I don't think that she would consider herself a public intellectual. Mm-hmm. Um, and we had a conversation about this one time, yeah, because she called me a public intellectual. Okay, flex on us. You haven't you haven't separate conversations with oh. Dr. Sadia Hartman? Oh, <laughs> flex on us, Brendan. Yes, <laughs> well, that's you know, when I'm able to to have them I do um but and yeah and because because of what happened last year with the whole um how to be anti-racist thing and I was like oh I don't know if that's what I want yeah. like I don't know and she was like sometimes you don't choose mm-hmm. sometimes being a public intellectual is just just what you do and so it is really difficult to be seen seriously as an academic if your work has a certain public and or political inflection to yes. it. Um, and like, that is something that this, I think when they kept talking about social media and Pruitt was like, yeah, you're active on social media, but what about what you're doing yeah, what about in these academic journals? Where like, are your publications? Right. Like it doesn't mean anything if you're publishing in essence. Mm-hmm. Right. But again, that begs the question, like who is your work for? Who's it legible to? And also in connection to the black man being chosen and promoted, they also marked, right, there was a, a diasporic difference. Mm, right? He was African. Mm-hmm. And I think that also adds another layer of, again, caricature of our department. <laughs> I think it adds another layer to that. Uh, what does it mean to be black American? Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm the only black American person, right, as, as a... Uh, PhD level in our department, and that's been so and, it's, and it's been pointed out to you multiple times by multiple people, uh, and so I think that also adds another layer of like academia: who's promoted, who's not promoted, who is seen as a right kind of black mm-hmm. or the real kind of black, which is what I was I was told I'm I'm a real black person um, versus you know, not being a black American person and, and being a different type of black. So I think the show hedges around that, but doesn't really actually give us the critique. Right. Um, Cause she, I mean, she pops up right at Pruitt's house and she's like, such a weirdo. <laughs> but I mean, Which, okay. So then on, on like the <laughs> other end, on another side of that choice of the things that you have to choose mm-hmm. between, right? Like if you prioritize your personal life, especially as a woman, you're also not a real academic, right? 
And, mm -hmm. and you see that in the end when she finally gets to her last, her only, her remaining 10 minutes of therapy. The only 10 <laughs> minutes she goes to the whole season, which of course solves everything in her life. It's like, girl, you should have <laughs> so should have been actually sleeping outside the therapist's this door. That's what I'm saying. But she's, you know, she's not prioritizing her <laughs> mental health. She's not prioritizing mm -hmm. her, you know, her self-care and all of these kinds of things. But... So she's sacrificing her mental health in order to prioritize her, her work life and her personal life, her relationships and her friendships. Mm -hmm. um, so alongside this whole public persona thing, she gets punished because of her presence on Twitter, for writing for the public, not publishing enough in academic journals. And then in the end, she kind of stands up to Dr. Pruitt, you know, telling Dr. Pruitt that her courses always have wait lists, the number of black students majoring in anthropology have increased since she's been a professor there because of her presence and because of her accessibility. And so all of that unserious side job stuff is here to stay. Like that's the new academia, get with it, or mm -hmm. you're gonna fall behind. Um, but I think that just overall, those last few episodes speak to the way that we have to sacrifice something in order to have it all. Mm. So we, mm -hmm. is that really possible? Then, of course, we must talk about Angie, who was being asked to apologize to the racist white woman on set. I was so <laughs> upset. Like, I loved her fantasy response. I was like, I wish that had actually yeah. happened. But then I saw that she apologized. And it just, it really upset me to think about all of the things that we as black women have to swallow in order to support ourselves and pay our bills. And I think that that is part of the trap and the scam of capitalism her, her. <laughs> um, I absolutely agree. I think, and two for for the the twist that comes later, right? Where it's like, okay, I apologize. Here I am. Plot twist. Um, it really kind of highlights how much of a scam all of this shit is. And as someone who will walk away from situations now. And we were talking about this before we started recording. <laughs> we'll walk away from situations now um, that are not healthy. I think all the time, like, what if we just divested from, or divested, excuse me, from all of this and said, I quit at the first sign of disrespect, yo. Like, as soon as you start popping off at the mouth, actually, I got to go. <laughs> um, my, my dream is that we'll be able to create a world in which, you know, we don't have to pay with our money, our sanity, our bodies, our relations to each other, right? To live, like, I, one of the biggest scams of colonialism is that we literally have to pay to eat. Like, mm. the fuck? I Every time I think about that, when I get hungry, like, oh, I, I'm spending money to nourish myself. Isn't, isn't that a meme? It's like, I can't me. believe my parents chose to have me and now I got to pay to be here. Yes. <laughs> Yes, and it's like, that goes yo, around. like, why? Why did y'all create a world in which people literally have to pay to live? Y'all couldn't have did nothing else. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> but anyway, that's our conversation on the show. We're going to move quickly. We're going to chat a little bit about the census and mm -hmm. Harlem. Um, so according to the last census, Harlem lost 10,000 black residents and gained 18,000 white people this decade. So overall, wow. Harlem's white population grew from 11% to 16% of all residents. And so since the 2000s, Harlem has not been a black majority, but from 2010 to 2020, it's had the 
biggest proportional decline. So it's gone from 56% to 43% black um, in the past 10 years. That's wild. So it's just, you know, things are definitely changing. And that article that we mentioned earlier, Sabia Prince's article, she was starting to document that gentrification um, and talking about Harlem in the 90s. She was saying that there were actually some in incoming like black professionals that were adding to mm -hmm. a black middle class, um, which I found really interesting because, of course, pe uh, when people think of Harlem, they think of like low income black people that live here. But there was actually 25 percent of the black population is middle class in Harlem. Yeah. And I think in order to justify this image of gentrification as cleaning up, you do have to do this kind of a mythologization mythologization of um black middle class people right because if you if people can imagine right or not essentialize blackness as with poverty and you say oh there's actually a, a, a strong contingent of black people here who have some form of wealth then the cleaning up stuff loses a little bit of its mm. you know its gravita mm -hmm. like it's it's urgency um so i do i thought that that was like a really salient point is to think about how the black middle class is like shifting in Harlem um, and then how it, it then becomes kind of this myth, right? That we have to bring Harlem back to in some way, even though it never really left. It's being pushed yes. out. So it's yeah. that all that complication um, and that and the other article that we talked about earlier uh, by Morgan Jenk Jenkins, uh, in which towards the end, she kind of describes herself as a and other black gentrifiers as parasites. I was, I was like, oh, I don't know. I mean, I guess maybe if we look at this from multiple vantage points, um, maybe we could get a little parasitic, I guess. But um, I was like, I guess, girl, if that's what you're into, <laughs> I, per <laughs> I feel like there are ways to come into communities and not serve as a parasitic force, mm -hmm. but we do have to be very careful in how we do that, for sure. Absolutely. Yeah, I think one of the things I was thinking about is that alongside revitalization comes a preservation mm -hmm. movement. Mm -hmm. And so I wonder in, in Baltimore, between in that neighborhood that you were talking about, what are, they, what are people going to see as worth preserving? Who is it that they're going Mules. to be talking about? <laughs> the ones that Mules, say real niggas die. He... <laughs> LOL. Uh, throw bike. Yes, that one. And um, the one where we rode past and you were like, oh, wow, that one's really pretty. Mm, okay. I think that one's definitely going to stay. But the carry out on the corner, mm -hmm. the hair store. That I was like, ooh, maybe one. I mean, I don't need hair products anymore, but 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 essentially, uh, but effectively, the yeah. sites of black social life, right? And mm -hmm. and not like sites of, um, of like what could you call it? Like sites of memory or sites of. I want to say representation, but that's not really the word that I'm looking for. Yeah, like the the stuff that's marked as cultural, mm -hmm. right? Like the explicitly marked as cultural versus the stuff that helps constitute the culture yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. but yes that's that's just something Very. that got me thinking but yeah that morgan jerkins article was odd even though she mentioned that church i was just like i know exactly which one you're talking about because they're <laughs> always talking about the white devil 
and the and the white gentrifiers and and like all these other like homophobic and like anti-black things in there and it's just it's an odd church but I should, probably yeah. shouldn't have said that publicly <laughs> before they come for me. <laughs> You'll be on the um, the marquee next. <laughs> I know. Don't even. Rem- I will. I'm. Al- I've already have been. Because um, as Morgan Jerkin said, even though she is not named, she is implicated, and so I have been implicated in many of those. Um, Ooh, I mean, they even true. they even hate on Barack. They're just like Barack Obama's the white man in the. <laughs> In a black sheet, in black face, something like that. Like they're Yo, wild. Not them having a an intersectional analysis <laughs> of everything. <laughs> it's just like, what intersection are you standing at? Honestly, um, but <laughs> very, definitely the wrong side. Okay, but yes. So I think that what Morgan Jerkins was expecting is that like she would move in and then become invisible. Right. But I think that with work, mm-hmm. with work like Sabia Prince, Leith Mullings and John Jackson's work, they demonstrate that there's still a tension between black folks who do move in, particularly mm-hmm. because the ones who are moving are often more middle class, um, educated. Um, they're looking for a place near near the city, near the areas where they work that they can live in to make their commutes easier. And so there's still like. There's a lot of complexity, I think, that really sh- throws mm-hmm. our assumptions of what makes a gentrifier in, and what and who is the gentrified, and throws that kind of into relief and complicates it. Mm-hmm. So before we close out, I just want to give a shout out to the documentary. We've been talking a lot about the U.S., but of course, this is happening in Canada. This is happening all over. I want to give a shout out to the documentary Talawa Abroad: Remembering Little Jamaica by Shireen Taylor. And it won an award at the Canadian Screen Awards. So definitely check out that documentary. It's about the erosion of Little Jamaica in Toronto. Wow, I said it the American way, but I really needed that emphasis. I'm also reading the book Frying Plantain. Uh, I also don't say it plantain. I say it plantain, but I also feel like felt like I needed that emphasis. <laughs> oh, wow. It's the Let way. Let me find out you're appropriating. I know. You're appropriating. I'm like, wow, I'm saying Toronto and plantain. <laughs> Anyways, I'm reading Flying. Pl- <laughs> anyway, I'm reading <laughs> Frying Plantain, and it's really good. It's about um, a first generation uh, Canadian whose family is from Jamaica, and just like growing up. I'm, I'm only a hundred pages in, but I'm like, oh yeah, this is like the quintessential Toronto <laughs> Jamaican diasporic upbringing. All of it is just it's perfect. So, and I think that this is a good way to kind of like you know incorporate Toronto and thinking about. About mm-hmm. Canada and different Gotta put ways of life. The, what do you call it? The six? Is that what, is that what it's called? I don't yeah, know. only Gosh. only Drake calls it that. <laughs> uh, we never called it. We never called it the six. I will say, and I'm going to, I'm gonna embarrass myself a little bit here because I had my partner dying. He was just like, I cannot believe this. But I actually, so I was born in Toronto. I lived in Scarborough for a little bit, and then I moved out to to the Burbs, but. Scarborough is it's part of the GTA so it's one of these like one of these like neighborhood areas of Toronto that kind of got amalgamated in like the 90s or the 2000s I can't remember and it's a place that is tends to be like very immigrant pretty low income and so there are a lot of like 
gangs and violence and things like that. So people used to call it Scarlem. Like Harlem and Scarborough, I, a portmanteau. I, <laughs> yo. It was called Scarlem, Scarberia. Like it was just, I can't even. Yo, <laughs> that's wild. That's. I mean, it was not that bad. Just, it was one of the. <laughs> You know. It was the, the Canadian version. <laughs> it was the nice version. The kind, friendly Canadian one. <laughs> so, That's yeah. Uh, Bay was just like, I... The U.S. reputation. Like, you should be embarrassed. Um, never admit that to anyone, and here I am telling it to thousands of people on our podcast. Okay. <laughs> well, that's our episode for today. Thank you all for listening. This episode was produced by Scarlam original Alyssa James <laughs> and Brendan Tynes and distributed in partnership with the American Anthropological Association. This season of the podcast is generously funded by a grant from the Arts and Science Graduate Council and donations from listeners just like you. Thank you all for that support. Like, we need it. We need he loves it. it. If you, we loves it and we need it. Uh, if you like this episode, please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. We would love to hear what you have to say about this episode. So be sure to follow us on Instagram at Zora's Daughters and on Twitter at Zora's underscore daughters. And for transcripts, syllabi, and information on how to cite us or donate, visit our website, Zora'sDaughters.com. Yes, yes. Be kind to yourselves, everyone. Bye. Bye.